Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With One Sonic. High definition audio noise cancelling headphones designed in Ireland. Visit onesonic.com. This is News Talk. Welcome to Tech Talk, Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll hear from Newswhip about the role that they play in setting the news agenda. The CEO of Food Marble will explain how their device could aid your digestion. And would you pay for a Twitter subscription? Tech Talk at Newstalk.com, as ever, is the email address if you want to get in touch with me here on News Talk. Um, we are doing our Christmas gift guides. They started during the week. We started with present ideas, techie present ideas under 60 euro. And every week over the coming weeks here on uh, the Pack Henny Show on News Talk, I'm going to be doing a different price bracket. If you missed that, you can listen back to the podcast on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud or head over to my Instagram at JessKellyNT and you will uh, get to see the full rundown of all of the products. And I will, of course, link back to the podcast as well. But before we can talk about Christmas fully, we need to talk about something that is going on this week and that is Science Week. It has been running since the 7th of November and it finishes up on the 14th of November. You can see the full list of activities and events that have been going on on scienceweek.ie. But one of the themes throughout this week has been around the importance of information verification and where you get your information from. Obviously, we've had a very turbulent number of years, um, politically speaking, and because of the pandemic. And the access to accurate information, I think, has never been more important. So I'm delighted to be joined now by Paul Quigley from Newswhip, which is a service that I use pretty much every day in work. Um, They have a number of offerings and really do help inform uh, journalists, decision makers, a whole host of people on what, and inform them, I suppose, as to what they should be talking about or what people are interested in, maybe what needs to be clarified, what greater information can we put out there to better inform people. And um, Paul, you're so welcome to the show. As I mentioned there, I use the product, but for those who haven't come across it, can you just give us a bit of a breakdown as to the different types of services that uh, Newswhip puts out there? So what Newswhip does is we track public engagement with all of the news stories that are spreading in the world each day. And we do that in real time. And we push all of that data into dashboards um, that are logged into every morning by journalists, people who work in PR and communications, and they can see which of the news stories, uh, social media posts and other content is driving the public's interest. And that can be a very useful input Um, editorially for making decisions about what to cover and for people in communications who need to know what might be reputation threats they need to be paying attention to or what are opportunities that are relevant to their brand uh, coming up today. Can you explain a little bit further just how exactly it works though because as I'm sure everybody is is aware by now uh, there is so much content being produced every hour of every day so how does your technology go in and fish through that? Yeah, so there's millions, literally millions of news stories appear on the internet every day. So there's a lot of stuff out there. There's, there's you know, hundreds of millions of tweets and Facebook posts. So the challenge for us and of what we try and 
uh, what our tools are really built around is separating out the signal, like which of these stories matters and how we do that is we look at which of the stories people are commenting on, sharing, tweeting about, uh, pinning on Pinterest and discussing on Reddit. And that gives us a strong signal of public interest. And so if you imagine we're pulling in these millions of stories, each story is you know, represented by a URL, and then we're pinging the, the social network APIs to see how much engagement each of those is getting. And we get a measurement at 11 a.m. Then you get another measurement at 11.15 a.m. Then you can kind of model the rate of change. Okay, 20 more people shared this story. That, that might be a big number in a more obscure area. Or if it's a national news story, 2,000 people per hour are sharing this story and therefore national news journalists are going to want to know, know about that. Now, that doesn't mean that they need to cover that story necessarily. It might not be on their beat uh, or whatever, but, but it does give this really valuable kind of view into the public's interest that you were describing yourself there, Jess. If we focus in on that point of the noise, like you said yourself there, there's millions of articles and content pieces being uploaded every single day. We've spoken and heard quite a lot in recent years about the issue of fake news versus trustworthy news. Is there any way to sort it out or, you know, does the fake news still count as being popular and being read therefore it has a worthy place on the platform yeah this is where things get interesting um it's very you know misinformation is kind of a spectrum right there's things that are clearly very wrong that are all out fake news websites and then there's stuff that's a bit more uh, gray area we're tracking all of that stuff and we're then being used by fact checkers and by experts to identify which stories they might need to debunk or that might be important. For example, the World Health Organization uses us in Africa and the Middle East to track, you know, which narratives are the big ones around public health issues and in particular around COVID and uh, narratives around COVID health and vaccination. And then they can say to their spokespeople, hey, this is, there's a big misunderstanding uh, that's that the public's got about the effectiveness of mouthwash, for example, as a prophylactic um, against being, being infected against COVID. And therefore we should brief our spokespeople about that. So by measuring and seeing what the public's engaging with, you can have smarter communications and also then fact checkers who work with the AP and a lot of other fact checking organizations to see well, which wrong narratives are worth us actually debunking. Because there's a lot of people wrong on the internet every day, but some stories are going to start mattering in the next few hours and we, we, we should try and focus on, on those ones. Yeah, I find this area, as a journalist, I find it completely fascinating because just because something is inaccurate, made up, completely baseless, doesn't mean that people won't share it and it doesn't mean that you won't get a group of people who believe in it. Um, so whether that's right or wrong, I suppose it just highlights how important the debunkers are um, and they've become such a vital part of the online society. Can your software identify where certain stories are being shared and if they're being shared more on one platform versus another? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's we, we don't see exactly where the sharing is happening. So privacy is really important. A platform like us, like ours, is very good at seeing which stories are going viral on platforms and maybe which public pages like you know, uh, politicians' pages, for example, are sharing them. But what we don't collect is who is sharing them and where they are, because that would all be, you know, too too close to 
individual privacy. So we're kind of tracking the story, not the people sharing the story. And that means some limitations. It's hard to say sometimes exactly who is sharing some things, but you know, a lot of the time we can infer from a publication or from which politicians' pages are sharing it and things like that. You know, then fact checkers can triangulate a bit and see you know which communities or in which interest groups this story is probably spreading. I know I've already said it, but I am fascinated in this side of things because, as we know, significant portions of society get the majority of their news from social media and I think if by utilising your platform you can identify you know what stories are being consumed by what age brackets you could possibly get a greater understanding of how well or otherwise people are being informed and then we can then work to cater to ensure that they are getting a full overview of what's going on in the world versus that nasty little echo chamber that we hear so much about. Yeah, I, I think um, we were able to offer a good chunk of the puzzle there, is how I'd put it, because we're, we can see which stories are, are going viral, we can see which Facebook posts and tweets are the ones going viral, and uh, say consistently which kinds of stories have been published to a particular Facebook page, and we'd, we'd know then that maybe people who are subscribing to this page are getting a particular kind of narrative. Uh, what's harder is to look at someone's individual media diet because, you know, I, I think about my own media diet and all the different places, all these different nuggets flow to me from, um, from my browser, from apps in my phone, from things like that. So it's much harder to, to uh, really get the individual data. And I think that's where university researchers and other kinds of researchers play a really important role. Yeah, picking up on um, the notion of algorithms, you know, if we look again, had how much news is consumed uh, on social media and so on. What impact does algorithm change have on what is consumed where? We've definitely seen um, over the years some of the big changes that have happened uh, as a result of changes by Facebook in, in particular. Um, you know, if you go back, you might remember when Facebook was full of, uh, you know, happy listicles 33 ways you know you're from Oregon or something mm -hmm. and you know puppy pictures and things and you know, there's a move towards quality more quality news at one point um, there's uh, been turning up and down the relationship between how much of what you see in Facebook comes from your friends and family versus from pages that you've subscribed to so we tend to see those those kind of things come through in the numbers when Facebook makes a change a really important one was after the Trump election uh, there was a much higher level of awareness then of real misinformation, like literally websites made to look like news websites that were just run by teenagers from Moldova <laughs> making up stories. And that was the real nadir of misinformation was around 2020 into 2021. And there was a lot of changes after that. And now it's much more, those websites tend to get crushed by, by Facebook's algorithms are all out banned. So you don't see as much of that real um, obvious fake news. Mm. In terms of the prediction aspect of NewsWhip, um, so you, your software can make projections as to how a story is likely to perform. I'm trying to get my head around how exactly that works and how much of it is almost a self-fulfilling prophecy? So, you know, if we project this story could do well, it will do well. Do you follow me? 
Yeah, there's, uh, it's a really good question. So how does our prediction work? It's um, at its core, we've, we've, you know, we've experimented a lot with prediction because it's core to what we do and people like being able to log in and you can see, you can kind of look at any story and you can see where it's going to be in a few hours in terms of engagement. And that's become a real huge differentiator for us and especially for people who work in communications and, 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 and in media. Um, and at its core, we've just gathered a lot of data from billions of stories and we've trained our models very well at seeing which kinds of patterns of early engagement indicate higher levels of later engagement. Maybe the simplest way of imagining it is um, if I throw a stone and an engineer you know, can measure the angle I've thrown it at, the velocity I've thrown it at, and bring in air resistance maybe or other things, but can probably calculate with a lot of accuracy where that stone is going to land. And we're, we're kind of similar, you know, we're looking at this pattern of engagement. We look at it a few times you know, and, and then we start getting the trajectory of the story. And when you're making any prediction, the really important things are to be unbiased and to have very up-to-date and recent data. And the algorithms are great. They're unbiased. They're, they've been trained on a lot of different stories. And we're very good at getting the most recent data in to feed them. And that means as long as we keep tweaking them and paying attention to make sure they're accurate, we, we, we can give very good predictions. There is a huge responsibility that comes with what you do. Like, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that. But because it is used by organisations you mentioned, such as the WHO, such as newsrooms around the world, there must be that sense of responsibility because you are part of the news machine, whether you like it or not. Is that something that you feel or do you just kind of look upon it as a piece of software built by a tech company? Uh, that's That's a really good question. And we we do feel as part of our identity is to be a responsible player in, we're kind of a node in the system now, Newswhip. You know, we're pulling in a lot of information and there's a lot of important people who use us to make their decisions. So we do think about the ethical elements of what we do in terms of putting our thumb on the scale in favor of better outcomes. We have a data for democracy program. So we give cheaper free access to our tools NGOs, especially in countries where there's an election coming up and there might be either government-sponsored disinformation or other misinformation spreading, so they can help identify that, debunk things, and get counterpoints out. Um, we don't deal with various categories of, of potential clients, such as kind of law enforcement surveillance, things like that. We just don't take on those clients. And um, any misinformation, any... Uh, media company that's producing this information we we won't take on as a client as well so we've got a few different ways of thinking about that that so so that we feel good about the the role that we're playing and like so, so there was an amazing story that we got from one of our clients recently um who advises the transitional government in an african country with a long history of civil war and military dictatorship and uh, there was a rumor kicking off on Facebook, there was posts spreading on Facebook suggesting that the, the, the government's army was about to get into a battle with a big independent militia. And using Newswhip, one of our clients, who's a, uh, an NGO advising the government, was able to say, look, this is spreading on Facebook. And all of 
the soldiers and the public are, are reading this and they think there's about to be a fight. And in some situations that can actually turn into a fight. So uh, they got the literally screenshots of how fast the story was spreading from our platform over to the prime minister's office. And they got that out to the army and the militia and they all issued statements on Facebook saying that they were not about to in fact have a battle. And that cooled the tensions and uh, kind of life returned back to normal again. So having this transparency and a window into what's happening can become quite life and death in some situations. And we're really uh, proud to be able to support that work. Because when we think about misinformation, we're thinking about US election stuff or local stuff, but a lot of the real life and death stuff around misinformation is happening in the developing world and um, more quietly. Yeah, I think sometimes we think of fake news and misinformation as one particular type of story but that example perfectly uh sums up that it is you know a life or death situation for so many elsewhere in the world can we just jump back to the topic of misinformation for a quick second if there is a post that's doing the rounds and if it is filled with misinformation if it's from one of those bogus websites trying to look like a legitimate news outlet and so on was there ever a conversation within the Newswhip team as to whether or not you wouldn't feature it on your platform, you wouldn't acknowledge it? Or was it always a case that, look, just because uh, we don't like it doesn't mean we can't, you know, remove it from all existence on the internet? Oh, well, I, I think we'd definitely be in the, um, you know, transparency, camp transparency, as long as we're comfortable with the people who've got access to our platform um not going to use it for nefarious purposes then it's much better if we can highlight what's what's really happening out there and then people can take a host of different actions like even with regard to regulatory responses to misinformation i mean they may be they may come in europe and that would be very well but if you've got different players you know attempting different misinformation in like in libya or in central african countries or in bangladesh uh i don't think big regulatory solutions are going to change what's happening there and what you need is transparency so ngos can see what's spreading so good actors can see what's spreading and, and take action and i think that's got to be a really important part of the regulatory regime if, the, if there's one coming for social media is around data transparency like show us what's actually happening rather than governments kind of saying well we're going to dictate you know what, what can and can't go up or something like that i think you know the, certainly our experience would suggest transparency has to be play a really important role yeah absolutely and tell me a little bit about the company itself how many people are in the organization now am i right in saying you have a dublin office and new york as well yeah, and we're growing fast. We, we've had a, you know, we're growing very quickly at the moment in terms of our headcount. We'll grow our global headcount by a third this year um, from low 50s up to uh, nearly 70. Uh, if we can make all the hires that we want and we, you know, we're hiring in Dublin. We've got um, a lot of engineering and um, software engineering roles open and other roles open and we're also hiring um, in New York. So, in terms of our team's distribution, we build all of our products. Um, you know, that means we're, we have our designers, product managers, engineers, and administration staff here in, in Dublin, um, and to some degree dotted around the country working remotely. 
and we have in the US our commercial leads. So uh, our, we've got a president for the US and a lot of our sales and marketing team and customer success team is based over there. And I'd say, you know, in terms of our revenue mix, the, the US would be the most important market for us. So you're looking at clients like the New York Times, the Washington Post and media and the Associated Press, Bloomberg. And then in the brand space, we've got some really awesome clients like, like Intel, Ford, McDonald's, um, that are using us to kind of both kind of track their brand, but track the bigger picture stuff as well. You know, for Ford, that could be around electric vehicles and renewables. And, um, you know, for any company, any big company really these days, there's a lot of other things they need to think about, not just how do people feel about our brand today. And they're using us to do that. Mm, I can totally see the value in big brands doing that, but also a lot of content creators, which is a phrase I don't really like. But I do think Newswhip, the, the software could be incredibly beneficial for anyone in any creative field that is looking to have their finger on the pulse of what is happening, what people care about, what people are engaging with and so on. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a, a lot of applications. We've kind of uh, we, we, the content creators who work with the most, of course, are in media and journalism, but in a sense, people designing a communications campaign for a brand or, uh, I suppose, coming up with reactive marketing, a lot of that is quite creative work as well. And we're the kind of data input. It's like, well, what what is the public interested in today and why? And then from that, you, the end user, as we see it, you know, our platform is has to make some very interesting creative decisions. Like no news newsroom bases all of the decisions off Newswhip and they shouldn't. Um, on the other hand, I think they can make better decisions and understand the audiences better if they do have us. And similarly, I think it's the same with any creative process. You get some really good inputs from us, but then um, the decisions about what you do with it and how that manifests really come from the creative. So we find, um, we find that quite inspiring, I think, what, how people use our platform in, in different ways. Well, look, as I said at the top, I am a big fan of what you guys do and that you do it incredibly well. I think it is brilliant that you are continuing to grow and I do hope that continues for quite some time. Paul Quigley from Newswhip, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks so much, Jess. As I said, that was one of the key themes of this week's Science Week in partnership with Science Foundation Ireland. Uh, the full list of information and events are up on scienceweek.ie. Coming up next here on News Talk, I'll chat to the team behind Food Marble. Tech Talk, Tech Talk. on News Talk with One Sonic. High definition audio noise cancelling headphones designed in Ireland. Visit onesonic.com. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address if you'd like to get in touch at any stage, or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Now, you may remember a few weeks back, we spoke to Cormac O'Connor of Design Partners about their new innovative wearable tech device that could help those living with heart conditions. It was an incredible piece and I would highly recommend you head on over to the Newstalk app and take a listen if you missed it. But it got me thinking about other Irish companies that are building medtech solutions. Enga Short of Food Marble is with me now to talk through what they do and how it could help you. Angus, uh, you're very welcome to the show. Food Marble is a company that's been on my radar for quite some time. 
But could you just start by explaining to those who've never heard of you what exactly it is that you do? Sure. Uh, so Food Marble is uh, it's a company we've developed um, for a breath analysis device. Actually, we're, we're on to our second generation now. It's a breath analysis device to help people with food. So it's to help them identify which foods they're able to digest most effectively. Uh, so that's kind. Of, it's really for people who might have food intolerances or 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 you know they, they might have conditions like IBS or but like all of those sorts of problems that are really common like like say IBS it's one in eight people but anyone who's is having difficulty with foods they're not sure is is like is dairy a problem is wheat a problem some of these really common issues this is a technology that you know it came originally out of the healthcare environment but we've made it accessible to consumers and and that's really the goal so what exactly is the device and how exactly does it do all of those things? Yeah, so it's a, it's a miniature little device that connects up to your phone uh, wirelessly via Bluetooth. And so you're breathing into the device and it's got sensors inside. It's got an array of sensors which are picking up certain components on the breath that are released when when basically when food is in your gut and, and it hasn't been absorbed because it's absorbed uh, into your bloodstream, uh, all of the nutrients. But when that doesn't happen, instead, it gets down to the part of the gut where all, the, all of the gut bacteria live, so the, the microbiome. And your gut bacteria, they will eat, they'll basically ferment the food and uh, that produces gases. And we're picking up those gases on the breath. This could be a stupid analogy, but is it anything like a breathalyzer in in how it works, or is it something entirely different? Oh yeah, that's a great analogy. So if you if you if you're familiar with alcohol breathalyzers, it's a similar idea. We're just picking up different sorts of molecules on the breath because we're we're really focused around digestion, but it's a similar concept. And how quickly does this analysis happen? Yeah. So after you eat, you know, it does take a little bit of time for the food to get, you know, get down your, you, you know, to you know, through your stomach and into kind of the part of the gut where all of the actual digestion happens. And um, so, so what we say to people is when you're, when, when you're using the product to, um, uh, you know, record what you like, it's important to record what you eat in the app because the app knows what's in different foods. So it can, it can use that information. So record what you eat in the app and then, you know, like basically we say to people, like one hour after you eat, take your first breath test. And then we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what the levels are like. And then we'll, the app will ask you to take a breath of basically each hour after you eat. And if we start to see a big increase in, in the levels that we're measuring, like, we're, like in the first generation device, we're measuring hydrogen levels in the breath. If we see a big increase in hydrogen, we'll point that out. We'll, you'll see that in the app. And also we'll be, able to, we'll be able to point to what in the foods you ate was most likely to have caused that problem because it's different for everybody. And, and when you say that, and again, forgive my ignorance, is that pinpointing specific foods or specific um, like elements of foods? You know, is it in plain English? Yeah. So if I know if I've been at a restaurant and I do this, it'll tell me the exact ingredient that I ate that caused an issue. Yeah. So what we'll do, what we'll do is we will we'll, we'll point out the foods for first of all, first of all, like, so the foods that we know were high in some of these. They're kind of they're called FODMAPs, but they're they're kind of food components that they're hard to digest and and they're fermentable. 
So there are these sort of fermentable food components called FODMAPs. So if you get those high breath readings, we'll show you which foods were high in FODMAPs, but then also we'll show you what food components inside that. So, so for example, if you, you know, if you, if you had ice cream, for example, we, we, um, we would show, okay, ice cream, it's, it's, it's higher in FODMAPs because it's got, uh, it's got lactose in, in the ice cream. So we'd point that out to you. Now, if you had a food that contained two different FODMAPs, um, you know, so, so, you know, maybe you had uh, sort of bread, uh, a cheese sandwich. So, so the bread would be high in a, in, in, in a FODMAP called inulin. So inulin is like a very hard to digest food component that's it. it's in bread, it's in pastas and different things. And it's the thing that makes wheat hard to digest. So it, it, so, so we point out that, okay, the, the bread you ate contains inulin, but then also the cheese you ate, if the cheese does contain lactose, we'd point out, you know, that type of cheese also contains lactose. So then maybe the next time, um, maybe you try with a turkey sandwich and then you'd see, okay, so I'm still getting a high reading. So that's pointing to the bread. Okay. And there's been a lot of focus around uh, food allergies, intolerances, and just people, I suppose, taking it upon themselves to diagnose themselves as having something versus not. For anyone who may be rolling their eyes at this notion, this is all based on science. This isn't just a trendy gadget that you can have to kind of get some likes on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. For us, it's very important to be very science-driven. So this is coming from technology that came out of both research um, and, and healthcare. So uh, traditionally, breath testing had been used a lot for uh, lactose intolerance testing. So, uh, so, so if you if trouble with dairy, it can be tested using uh, breath testing, um, and you know it's 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 used around the world. It's 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 been something. It you know it tends to be big desktop machines in a hospital, and you know because it's it's something that it takes a number of hours to to like say if you're testing lactose. Uh, the, the traditional way you're you, you know you're consuming um uh, some lactose mixed with water and you're taking breath tests over a number of hours it's hard to have patients sitting around in in you know in the clinical setting for a number of hours and so it kind of creates um it, it like it, it doesn't really suit the, the healthcare system so for us you know we, like we we of course have this uh offering for consumers but we've also got we're also working with with hospitals and clinicians so uh, especially in the US, we've got um, we, we, we've got an ongoing clinical trial at Johns Hopkins University, one of the best uh, uh, institutions in the world in this respect. Uh, but we're working with a number of hospitals as well, so some of these you know really serious institutions. And and what what's interesting for them is you know breath testing it's a, it's a great technology and and it's effective, but you know it's it, it's just not as convenient for them to to have people you know in the hospital or in their office for, for several hours and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's not convenient for the patients either. Mm. How much is the, the food marble device? Yeah, so we've, we've got, so currently we just launched pre-orders for a second generation device. So there's kind of two options for people. You can either, um, like, so from Ireland, the, you, you, you can buy the existing device right now and it'll arrive in a few days. And that will basically be, uh, 169 euros. Uh, if you if you want to buy the uh, the device, um, and if you, if you want to pre-order the second generation device, we've got a special because the second generation device, it's it's uh, it, 
advance on the first generation device. Uh, that's 160. So, um, so, so basically, it's it's the same price right now um, uh, during the period. Uh, but for a lot of people as well, there's um, you can get a a testing kit to test uh, very specific food components. So stuff like I mentioned, like lactose, fructose, sorbitol, some of these really hard to digest food components. So that's an extra 39 euros. So, 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 um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so, so, you know, um, I'd invite people to, to go check out foodmarble.com and to see if it would be interesting for them. Um, and there's actually, there's actually a special offer right now as well. Uh, so there's 20% off uh, on the website. So, um, yeah. It, it, when people get this and when they do the test and when it comes back with results, what do they do with that? Is it a case of they then avoid those foods? Do they take it to their doctor? What's the best course of action? Yeah, so so there's kind of a couple of things. I mean, for a lot of people who have some of these, these digestive issues, um, they've excluded lots of foods from their diet. So they already are living this very restricted diet. And, you know, they've, they've kind of went to friends and family. They've, they've you know, this, they've gotten information from the internet, sometimes from clinicians. And often they have a very restrictive diet. So in a lot of cases, what we're doing is we're showing to people, actually, you know, you're okay to, to dairy is not a problem for you. That's actually fine. Um, because, you know, uh, especially when, uh, you, you, if you've digested problems, but also like a lot of people now are, are vegetarians or vegans and, it, and your diet gets more and more restricted again. So a big message for us is that this is a tool to, to help you kind of broaden out your diet. So it's not just about, but, you know, in some cases, the testing will come back and show, okay, you know, you should avoid sorbitol. It's something that you're, you're getting really high fermentation and that seems to be, uh, you know, upsetting your gut. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a mixture of um, uh, restricting foods, but then also, you know, having actual evidence that certain foods are actually okay for you to eat. Yeah, and that peace of mind, um, I think, could be very beneficial to quite a few people. You mentioned that we're on the second iteration of the device. Tell us a little bit about the company. How long have you been around and who exactly yeah. is on the team? Yeah, so we've been around since 2016. Like I originally started working on this probably 2014. Um, it's coming out, my my wife actually, she is, uh, she'd been diagnosed with IBS and I was just trying to find uh, something helpful for her and I was coming from that, uh, coming from an engineering background. So when I found out about breath testing and what I could do, um, actually built her a prototype device to try herself. And it was interesting to see that she was able to pick out foods that she could eat and, and, and then also kind of, you know, get some confirmation and peace of mind on the foods she couldn't. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And, you know, it was really that um, there was, you know, a small group of us got together and, you know, we could see, okay, there's a, there's a ton of people out there with these issues and there's not really much to help. So um, we, we, we got it, we, we applied to a, an accelerator program. We got, uh, that was out in China. So we went out to China for, it was like a specialist program for people who are building devices. So we're out there for six months and, you know, that was 20, that was 2016. But, you know, since then, um, you know, worked are worked to a company of 33 people. Um, we've got operations in the US as well um and mostly in the healthcare side but you know it's 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 definitely getting bigger <laughs> yeah it, it's great to see you guys go from strength to strength as i said you've been on my radar for quite some time uh, so it's great to get to chat to you to get to hear about the new iteration of the device and the work that you are continuing to do uh, the website again is foodmarble.com if you want to go on 
have a look and maybe even treat yourself or someone that you know to uh, one of the devices to see if it can help in some way. Uh, Enga Short, thank you so much for joining us here on Tech Talk. Thanks, Jess. Coming up next here on News Talk, would you pay for Twitter? Tech Talk. Tech on News Talk. With One Sonic. High definition audio noise cancelling headphones designed in Ireland. Visit onesonic.com. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address if you'd like to get in touch, or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. And we're going to talk about Twitter now. Um, I have going to be honest with you now I've fallen a little bit out of love with Twitter in recent times I've spoken on Moncrief here on News Talk and a few other shows about the issues I have when it comes to how they handle abuse harassment general bad behavior um I think they've definitely made progress but there's still a lot more to do I myself have received uh, some not so nice messages on the platform particularly in recent weeks and months from certain accounts and I've reported them. I have tagged the tweets involved and I've received messages back from Twitter saying that they have found that they weren't in breach of their policies, despite it very clearly being in breach of their policies. Um, So I'm frustrated by the platform, but that's just me. Um, But Twitter is ploughing ahead with its innovations and Earlier this week, it went live with Twitter Blue, which is a subscription service to Twitter. And you get certain features, but it is only available in certain parts of the world for now. Kira O'Brien, the tech and business reporter with the Irish Times, joins me now. Kira, first off, give us the, the exact rundown of what exactly Twitter Blue entails. Okay, well, I suppose... To start out, I mean, Twitter Blue is a subscription service for Twitter now. It's not, it doesn't mean that that um, that the the free version of Twitter is going away. But this is a space that's a, a service and a feature that's designed for, say, power users. So it wouldn't. They're not trying to hit the average person with this. You know, the person who goes on and, and sends a few tweets, reads a few articles. They're talking about people who would spend a lot of their time on the platform. Maybe they're they're managing um, Twitter accounts on behalf of people, you know, maybe they work in social media management, maybe, you know, they're, they're managing brands. So the idea behind Twitter blue is that it gives you access to new features that aren't available on the regular free Twitter that we all suffer through with, uh, such as the ability to undo a tweet. Now I've seen this kind of raised a few times uh, in other areas and on other sites about the, the fact that it, it essentially amounts to an edit button it doesn't it gives you the option within 60 seconds which is not a very very long time to undo your tweet so you have between i think it's, it you can set it between five and six seconds you have that amount of time to decide oh no I typoed the tweet or maybe I shouldn't say that and then undo it before it becomes public after 60 seconds it becomes public and if you've made a mistake or you've said something you shouldn't you have to either you know do what the rest of us do and just brazen it out or delete the tweet so it's not an edit button it's an undo button um, it just gives people I suppose if you're managing a brand or if you're managing a professional social media account it gives you something like kind of like an extra tool so if something does happen that you know and you send something out that you shouldn't or you send it from the wrong account, as has happened to plenty of people on occasion, you can undo it fairly quickly before anybody actually sees it. Um, Mm. The service itself, look, it's $3 a month. Um, It's only available in select locations. So it originally launched, I think it was Canada, was one of the first. So it's now available in the US, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. It's not here yet. Um, 
basically, I mean, I know a lot of people be thinking, you know, why can't we just get these features for free? But there's a lot of services out there that allow you to do basic, do basic social media management that people pay a subscription for because it's an easier way to do it than to try and send everything through the Twitter app or through twitter.com. So, you know, this is just, I suppose it's Twitter's version of it. Um, another thing actually that they do, which would be very useful if you were managing multiple Twitter accounts is when you bookmark uh, tweets, you can now put them into folders if you sign up for, for Twitter Blue. It just means, I mean, I, I'm forever bookmarking tweets or, you know, what we used to do is just like the tweets and then, you know, mm-hmm. you'd have to go back and find them later on. I'm forever bookmarking tweets. I don't think I've ever gone back and looked at a single tweet I've ever bookmarked purely because it's a mess. You know, it's just a long list of, of tweets. Being able to organize those into bookmarks would be brilliant. But, you know, I'm not going to pay $3 a month for it. And also it's not available here yet anyway. So it's not really an issue. But when it is, I can't see me paying, you know, 36 euro a year for the ability to bookmark tweets. It's just not that compelling for me, but for a brand or for somebody, you know, who's managing multiple accounts or doing this for a living, you know, I can see why it would appeal. And the other thing it does. Just on that though, Kira, because, you know, you mentioned the price and, Obviously, people will be aware that you can get a verified Twitter profile, which is essentially the blue tick and you get some nice features. If Twitter wanted to just offer this to super users, they could have done it. The fact that they're doing it for money, is that telling us something about the state and the status of Twitter as a whole? Um, I mean, Twitter's business at the end of the day, if they can make money out of something, you know, they're going to do it. <laughs> I'm not really all that surprised that they're offering these extra features. Look, people have been screaming for an edit button. It's problematic for several reasons because, you know, I mean, you've seen it happen on Facebook where somebody puts up a post and then goes back and edits it afterwards and all the comments underneath and all the replies to it, you know, half of them would reference the original post. I can see why Twitter aren't that keen on doing an edit button. I can see why people want it because, you know, I've done it myself where I've I've made a mistake and would like to go back and edit the tweet without having to delete it and lose everything. Um, You know, these are, are not... I'm not even sure that these these features are compelling enough to make people pay for it. You know, this is just, they're minor conveniences. Um, whether or not it's indicative of the state of Twitter as a company, I wouldn't, to be honest, I, I, I wouldn't go that far because at the end of the day, as I said, these aren't, they're not, um, they're, they're not essentials. They're not, you know, if you don't have this, then you can't use Twitter at all. Uh, it's just a nice extra to have. And I suppose if Twitter can make a bit of money out of that, I mean, you know, why shouldn't they? If they were starting to charge for, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the basic services for businesses, I'd be more concerned of that, if you know what I mean. Like, I'd, I'd kind of be more, my ears would be be pricking up more on that one. Mm. Um, because look, these at the end of the day, you can live without these features that are, that are on Twitter Blue. You can. And if, you know, things were that dire, I suppose, at Twitter, they would be, I suppose they'd be putting a price on features you can't do without as opposed to features that are nice to have. Now, I could be completely wrong, but that's just my take on it. Yeah, it is an interesting one because I think people have been watching Twitter for some time. Twitter is a funny social media platform in terms of the mix of people that you get there, the way people use it, the proportion of people who use it well versus badly, who use it for good versus bad. I mentioned at the top of the segment that I've kind of completely fallen out of love with the platform recently because I just don't think they're doing enough to protect users on the platform. What would be your thoughts on that one? 
I think all social media companies can and should do more when it comes to people being abused on their platform. Look, at the end of the day, if, if I sign up, if I have an account on Instagram and somebody is abusing me, I can proactively block any accounts that they may set up in the future. So that means there is a way to do this. Mm -hmm. There is a way to combat this. It's just, you know, it's the will to actually to do it. And we've seen it on various social media platforms that toxic content can often be the most popular um and you know obviously for different people that will have different meanings but at the end of the day look you know twitter is not a nice place to be if you are a, you know if, if you are a female if you are in any way different you know if there's racist abuse there's misogynistic abuse there is homophobic abuse you know the there's basically just an underbelly of of crap on twitter now that it's not limited solely to twitter but it just feels like it's a never ending battle against it. And I'm not sure what the answer is. I just think that, you know, there are a lot of very intelligent people working in these companies and they really need to step up their game on this or else what is going to happen is, as you've said, you've fallen out of love with the platform. I mean, it's a, it's, it's one of those things that like, yeah, okay. It's people use Twitter now, but if it becomes, it comes to a point where they are complete, it's completely toxic and you're not enjoying it anymore and you're not enjoying the interaction. I mean, I find, I spend less time on Twitter these days because it makes me, it, it stresses me out a little mm -hmm. bit in that, you know, you see people talking, hating rubbish, you know, you see people abusing other people. And you know that if these people were face to face, they would not be saying half the stuff that they are. But because Twitter gives you this kind of veneer of, a veneer of 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 um, anonymity, you know, and it's not even real anonymity. We've seen this before, you know, people who abuse people on Twitter can and have been brought to court. Mm -hmm. um, but because there is this veneer of anonymity, people say things that if they were standing in front of them, they wouldn't. And, you know, I've been talking to, to colleagues about this and, and one of them put it very well. She said, would you listen to, you know, the, the, the drunk rambling at the bar at you and abusing you at the bar, in which case, why do you listen to these people? So now I actually just ignore an awful lot of it, but it's easy to say, ignore it. Yeah, um, that, that's where I fall down do. though. Yeah, like I've spoken to you about this privately. Like I think the ignore thing, I, I completely take the analogy of the drunk at the bar and you can ignore that and that's fine. But the blocking, the reporting, the, you know, flagging tweets as abusive and all the rest it doesn't stop it from happening. And the account that I referenced at the top of this piece that has been targeted, or one of the accounts that's been targeting me, they so they can't see my profile anymore, but they can still tag my employer. They can still tag my friends. And it is harassment. And I don't, like, I'm actually kind of loath to be talking about great new innovations from Twitter when they can't even get the house that they have in order. I just don't think it's acceptable anymore. I, I would agree with you there. Now, I do think that, you know, it's, you know, when you see them launching new features, it's like, yeah, but how about you deal with the abuse? And mm -hmm. that's something, look, and I know that they have put in measures that, you know, have dealt with some of it. And personally, whoever came up with the mute button deserves an app, it comes up, it deserves a raise, you mm -hmm. know, because that way then you can't get, you don't get people saying, oh, they blocked me. They don't want to know what, they don't want to hear the truth. No, I just don't want to hear you rambling nonsense at me. And it's in my phone, you know, and yes, you can stay off Twitter, but there are people who are, I interact with on Twitter and I have very positive interactions with. So, you know, why the hell should I stay off Twitter? Because some people don't have manners. And that's really what it comes down to. I mean, would you say these things to people if they were standing in front of you? No. If you, would people say, would people refer to you as rude if you say half the things that you say to people on social media in person? Mm. They probably would. In which case, you need to have a good hard look at yourself. 
if that's, you know, if, if this is how you interact with people, if you think this is an acceptable way to talk to other people, have a good hard look at yourself, maybe take a break from social media yourself and think, is this the way I want to live my life? Because yeah. personally, I mean, like, does it, there, you know, I could go on a rampage with people who send me abuse on Twitter and be just as rude to them. But the thing is, I don't because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm representing an employer like yourself mm-hmm. and I will not lower myself to that level. And I won't answer people who think that it's okay and it's acceptable to talk to people in that way because I wouldn't talk to them in real life. If somebody came up to me and started talking to me like that, I'd walk away from them. Yeah. But again, telling people to stay off social media, if you don't like it, just, you know, delete Twitter. That's not the answer either because it's victim blaming. Do you know what I mean? You are the victim of somebody abusing you. Oh, well, but you have to alter your behavior because they don't know how to conduct themselves in public. And that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I think if we kind of let that argument of, well, if you don't like it, walk away, Twitter is going to be an absolute dive in a matter of weeks, if not months. I think it's just, it, that's not the answer here. Anyway, we are clearly fired up about this issue. I would love to hear from you, techtalk at newstalk.com. Would you pay for Twitter? Are there any services that you would pay for to have on social media to maybe make it a bit of a nicer place? Uh, let me know. Uh, Kira O'Brien from the Irish Times, as always, thank you so much for joining us here on Newstalk. Thank you. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can, of course, Listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. I will be back with Pat Kenny on Tuesday morning for the next of our Christmas gift guides. This time we'll be looking at gifts for less than €120. If you missed last week's one, uh, which focused very much on gifts for less than €60, you can listen back on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast on Monday morning. But up next here on News Talk is John Fardy. I'll chat to you next week.